He died in 1965, so that's a long time ago. And um, uh, I think I've largely come to terms with, uh, with being his kid um, over that period of time. That people's faith in mistaken beliefs is strengthened even when presented with factual corrections. In other words, providing corrective information actually can make the misinformation more potent. We've been able to diversify in the different industries that are out there, accounting, finance, uh, mortgage, consulting businesses. You have uh, businesses that are local restaurants and bars. Uh, there'll be breweries there and wineries. First up, that's Casey Murrow, son of the broadcasting legend Edward R. Murrow, followed by NPR's Melissa Block, this year's recipient of the Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award, and batting third in today's lineup is Colin White of Coogs First, Spokane. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. If you want to get in touch with me regarding topics for future shows, you can call me at 206-459-5536. That's 206 206- 459-5536. You just heard the lineup of guests for today, so on with the show. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. As we talked at the top of the show, Edward R. Murrow is an iconic person when it comes to broadcasting. His list is a mile long. And Edward R. Murrow was a student at Washington State College, then it was the college, in 1930. That's when he graduated. And his son, Casey Murrow, was on campus this week to help celebrate the 44th Murrow Symposium named after his father. Now, before I delve into the details of that interview, Casey Murrow himself is a very successful individual in his own right. He is the director of Synergy Learning, a nonprofit organization specializing in science and math programs for schools and teachers. So we had a discussion. I asked him about what was Edward R. Murrow as a father. How did he get along with him? Also, what were his aspirations growing up? And what did, let's say, Casey feel his best story was? And what did Edward R. Murrow himself feel his greatest story was. Before we dive into all that, it had been a little time since he had been on the campus at Washington State, and I asked him if he's seen a lot of change since he was last there. Oh, sure, it's changed with a number of new buildings, and uh, of course, the uh, the Murrow College is largely the same, I think, but uh, I'm sure with changes that I don't recognize. So how about your father's legacy as you get away from it more and more? Do you have any thoughts in terms of what type of journalist, what type of person he is, and how revered he still is, and um, what, are your, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's astonishing that he is still revered in the way that he has been, not just here at WSU, but elsewhere as well. And he continues to be mentioned in so many settings, as, as you know, and I think that's, that's a wonderful tribute to, to the work that he did. On the other hand, I don't know how long that'll last. I mean, given, uh, given changes in, in both technology and in journalism, I hope his name still uh, rings a bell for a lot of people. What would he think if he were here today about what has happened to the news? I think he would be fascinated with some of the technological advances that we've all 
been through. I think he would be at the same time somewhat horrified by the uh, ability of journalism in various forms to uh, to simply show up in uh, in people's inboxes, um, whether that's email or or some other device. But I I really have a hard time imagining what he would uh, think of the the world in general. And just just the way the world is evolving right yes, now. Yes, exactly. Have it. Exactly. Because he obviously it was not an easy time when he was in, a journalist. I mean, no. in you know in England and things like that. And he saw a lot of horrible things during the time. He seemed to have the ability to really summarize what was going on at that moment, which I think we're lacking right now. I think he did. He he loved storytelling, and I think some of that he actually learned at. Uh, WSU and or Washington State College as it was at the time and in other settings so his storytelling skills I think were were super important to uh, to his success. I'm going to pause this interview with Casey Murrow for just a moment and have you listen to Edward R. Murrow describing German bombing runs over London that became known as the Blitz. This is Trafalgar Square. The noise that you hear at the moment is the sound of the air raid sirens. I'm standing here just on the steps of St. Martin's in the Fields. I'll just let you listen to the traffic and the sound of the siren for a moment. Just a few people here walking rather hurriedly toward the air raid shelters. Here comes one of those big red buses around the corner. Double-deckers they are, just a few lights on the top deck. In this blackness, it looks very much like a ship that's passing in the night, and you just see the portholes. If you really want to get an idea of the storytelling abilities of Edward R. Murrow, I suggest you Google his name and just input London. Back with my interview with Casey Murrow. Do you think uh, he would like what he's seeing today in, let's say, the growth of the news stations and all of the information that's out there now? I wonder if he would. I, I suppose he would be impressed by, by some of it. On the other hand, uh, maybe uh, maybe he would be horrified. Who knows? Who knows? Just don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Well, how about you now? When you were growing up, how did you decide to end up doing what you, in the career that you chose and where you live, which is uh, in Vermont, correct? It's, that's true. And I've worked mostly in education. I've been a classroom teacher. I've been a principal. I've been a, a number of different... I've worked for the University of Vermont for quite a while. And all that has been very satisfying work for me personally. How does that fit in with my parents? Well, both my parents, I think, were were very committed to education in a variety of ways. My mother was a long-term supporter of Mount Holyoke College, uh, where she attended, and my dad was certainly a supporter of Washington State College, as it was then, and, uh, and its many programs. So I really felt that I was, in a sense, following in a realm of their great interest uh, in education, not uh, not specifically in, in journalism. I also got some advice from my father, who didn't give me a lot of advice, <clears throat> but he he suggested that following in his footsteps in journalism with my last name would be a little bit of a problem, that, that I'd always be compared to and um, and be uh, perhaps worried about measuring up, but I that that turned out not to be what happened. Were you ever thinking about going in that direction, or or not? I worked for ABC Television News one summer in their in their network operation in New York, and had a lot of fun doing that. Of course, but it was also somewhat obvious that they were using me to further their own interests, and that I didn't think was a good idea. 
Well, what's the, uh, let's say, the positives of being the son of Edward R. Murrow versus the burdens? Let's start with, what, what is right. the pluses? Well, the pluses were tremendous because he was a wonderful dad and, and actually spent a lot of time with me. So his, his sometimes somber attitude uh, that, that people refer to really was not part of my experience. He was a, he was a very engaging person who uh, uh, seemed to enjoy, uh, as far as I could tell, being around me. And uh, we went hunting and fishing and camping and uh, ran the Rogue River at one point and uh, uh, so on. So we, there, were, there were a lot of things that, that made him uh, a very positive influence on me growing up. What would be some of the burdens then? Well, you know, I, I'm not so sure that there are a whole lot of burdens because I, I'm certainly proud of what, what he did and uh, of things like the Murrow College here at WSU. I think that one aspect of, uh, if we think in terms of burdens, and one aspect that I think is, is worth considering is that he died in 1965, so that's a long time ago. And... Um, uh, I think I've largely come to terms with uh, uh, with being his kid um, over that period of time. He was obviously known there's, for many things, but probably the two biggest things that come to mind is this is London, the bombing in London, and also his interview with Joe McCarthy, which really mm-hmm. kind of opened up with those uh, further investigations and essentially, uh, I just have to say, the first peg in bringing Joe McCarthy down. Mm-hmm. That's what we think of when we think of Edward R. Murrow. What do you think he was most proud of? I think he was very proud of, uh, of his wartime reporting, most definitely, and you pointed to that. He was also proud of the McCarthy work, but, but I think also very proud of um, the, that was done in a program called See It Now. And he, he was extremely proud of the reporting, sort of long-form journalism that they did um, in a one-point hour-long broadcasts and television broadcasts and then later uh, half hour so they were able to cover stories in quite a lot of depth and that was the first time that it happened in in television broadcasting so he had opportunities to work in uh, in radio and television at breakthrough moments that were uh, were quite astonishing really and he was pretty aware of that I remember that speech he gave about television news and mm-hmm. it was 1956 or something I think really, it was uh, identifying and articulating the great part of this new medium at the time and what we should be a little more than worried about almost terrified he, he kind of laid that out I think he did and with uh, with a lot of emphasis that was a speech in Chicago and it was uh, it was certainly a, an upsetting speech to uh, uh, the media executives who were there perhaps that was good yeah, good thing. Make him feel uncomfortable, and that's what you got to do. When he left uh, CBS and went on to work, I think, for the Kennedy administration. He did, yeah. Was it wasn't an easy uh, exit for him from the media. It, it just didn't seem like it was a great parting. No, I think it wasn't a great parting, and I think he felt that uh, CBS would was not going to be totally disappointed if he left. And uh, however, he was very proud to, to serve the Kennedy administration, and, and felt that uh, that people ought to serve in that kind of setting if they were asked. That was a very important element to him. His departure, I think, from uh, from CBS was on on the one hand difficult for him, but uh, in other ways um, a matter of pride of. Uh, 
uh, moving forward in uh, in some ways. He certainly kept a, a hand in. He was involved in some very early discussions about um, the development of public radio uh, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and uh, and so on. And that was uh, that was important to him as well. He probably would have jumped into that had he lived. I, I think imagine. he might have. Yeah, I think he might have. I went to the Murrow Symposium for the first time just had graduated from here maybe four years before mm -hmm. and I was sitting in Bryan Auditorium and uh, we had all these luminaries there Fred Friendly was mm -hmm. there um, Charles Kuralt came in and um, I'm sitting next to a woman and I introduced myself and I said uh, my name is Paul Casey and who are you and this is Merle <laughs> and I went oh my gosh and it was a that was pretty stunning to have that occur because mm -hmm. I didn't expect it. I had dinner and I was around a table with Charles Kuralt was there and boy, it's really nice of you to come here. And he said, I wouldn't be here. Mrs. Murrow called. Mrs. Murrow called. You came. <laughs> That's great. Yes. That's, that was probably true. And uh, uh, I think she, she brought a number of people here um, and to other kinds of events um, that she felt were important and, uh, uh, and significant. My thanks to Casey Murrow for spending time with me on Voices of Experience today. I can only hope that one day that we'll be in a position as a country to return to the news as it was defined by Edward R. Murrow. Melissa Block, NPR Special Correspondent and co-host of All Things Considered from 2013 to 2015, is one of my guests today, and she was the recipient of the 2019 the Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award that was presented to her at the Cub on the campus at Washington State University. And she is in incredible company. Just Google Murrow Symposium and find out of some previous giants who have won that award. Melissa delivered her speech to students, faculty, and guests. Let's pick up with her speech when she was talking about what it's like to be a reporter in this environment, let's say for NPR and any other reporter, and the state of journalism as she sees it today. An NPR colleague once told me, reporters have a skeleton key to the world. And it's true. We're really lucky. We get to go to fascinating places and ask nosy questions. And almost always, people trust us with the gift of their stories. Almost always. Of course, as we all know, we are living in a time when there is widespread distrust of the media, when facts are seen as fungible and fluid. We're having to figure out how to cover a president who, according to the latest tally by the Washington Post's fact checker, has made 9,451 false or misleading claims in 801 days. It's about 12 untruths a day. And as journalists, we find ourselves wrestling with precisely what to call that. Do we call these incorrect statements by the president lies or falsehoods? And if we try to truth squad these claims to refute the falsehoods, we might bear in mind what some social science research has shown, that doing so may instead have the opposite unintended effect. It's known as the backfire effect, the notion that people's faith in mistaken beliefs is strengthened even when presented with factual corrections. In other words, providing corrective information actually can make the misinformation more potent. By repeating the false claim in order to disprove it, 
we end up simply propagating and reinforcing the original falsehood. Another separate and also daunting finding, this one from researchers at Duke University, that exposure to contrary opinions on Twitter didn't make people more open to opposing views. It just increased polarization. And yes, we are living in a time when the press is routinely and constantly condemned by the president. Of course, there is ample precedent for media bashing from the White House. In 1970, it was Vice President Spiro Agnew who famously snarked about the media, calling them the nattering nabobs of negativism. In words penned by speechwriter and evident alliteration lover William Sapphire, Agnew went on, they have formed their own 4-H club, the hopeless hysterical hypochondriacs of history. From there, we've moved on to the latest iteration with President Trump labeling media as the enemy of the American people, out of control, crazed lunatics, traffickers in fake news. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. These words are not just an insult to our profession. These words have power, they are toxic, and they spread like a virus. Look at what other leaders that we see now dismissing unflattering media reports as fake news. It's autocrats, leaders of repressive regimes from Syria to Venezuela to China, Myanmar, the Philippines, Brazil. They're all taking up the cry fake news and brandishing it like a weapon to discredit and crack down on the press. And yes, we see this idea spreading more and more here at home. I was deeply disturbed when I saw a recent public opinion poll conducted by Quinnipiac University. One question was this. People were asked which of these represents their point of view. One, the news media is the enemy of the people. Or two, the news media is an important part of democracy. The good news, I suppose, is that overall 69% of voters went with an important part of democracy. 21% chose enemy of the people. But among Republicans polled, 47% said the news media is the enemy of the people. Just 31% said it was part of democracy. Think about that. And then think about the man who was filmed at the end of one of President Trump's recent rallies, screaming at the reporters there and calling them degenerate filth. What can we conclude from this? It is a sobering prospect and one we should all reckon with. I am choosing to believe that facts still matter. The truth is not subject to debate that the term fake news is an abhorrent construct, that the legacy built by Edward R. Murrow still stands for something very, very important. And I think about the legacy left to us by the journalists who have died in the course of their work, or who in some cases were deliberately targeted because of their work. Jamal Khashoggi, Marie Colvin, Anthony Shadid, Chris Hondros, Tim Hetherington, Bruce mentioned the, the reporters of the Capital Gazette who were targeted, so many more. And in th I think in particular about NPR's supremely talented photojournalist named David Gilkey. David was on assignment for NPR in Afghanistan in June of 2016. He and, and our Afghan interpreter, Zabihullah Tamana, were traveling with an Afghan army unit when that convoy came under fire and David and Zabi were both killed. David was able to turn NPR's radio journalism into visual journalism online that packed an incredible punch. What we aspire to do with sound, to create a deep, personal, intimate window into a story David was always able to capture with his camera. Look at his photographs from Iraq and Afghanistan, from the depths of the Ebola epidemic in Africa, from the earthquake in Haiti. Look at the faces he captured in times of war, in moments of despair, and sometimes joy. And you immediately know there is a man of great heart behind the lens. 
The camera that David was carrying on the day he died is preserved now, battered and dusty, in a case in NPR's lobby in Washington, D.C. And above that camera, printed on the wall, is something that David once said to explain his hopes for what his work could do. It's not just reporting, he said. It's not just taking pictures. It's do the visuals, do the stories, do they change somebody's mind enough to take action? So if we're doing our part, it gets people to do their part. And then he added, hopefully. I think about that when I walk by that camera. I think about the terrible price that David and Zabi paid for their devotion. And I hope, I really, really hope that what David was hopeful about is true, that our work, the telling of stories that matter, that it does create change, that it inspires people to take action, to do their part. That sense of mission is actually built into NPR's DNA. In the mission statement that was written by one of the network's original founders, Bill Seemering, back in 1970, I've been lucky enough to get to know Bill over the years, and I keep some of his words pinned above my desk as a kind of touchstone. Stop for a minute and just think about how revolutionary this idea was back then in 1970 and how inspiring it still is now. Bill wrote, National Public Radio will not regard its audience as a market or in terms of its disposable income, but as, a curious, as, but as curious complex individuals who are looking for some understanding, meaning, and joy in the human experience. That's Melissa Block speaking at the Cub Auditorium on the campus of Washington State University. There is really nothing to add to what she had to say because it is so beautifully put. Well, as we continue this show, it's becoming clearer that this is Crimson and Gray Day at Voices of Experience. We're going to shift to Spokane, where Coogs First is having their second annual trade show. I spoke with the chair of Coogs First Spokane, Colin White, and I asked for the details about the show. But before I get to that, if you've been listening to this show for any length of time, I have covered Coogs First Seattle. And they're in their seventh year, and they just had their seventh year, actually, just a short time ago. But again, this is only the second time Spokane has been doing Cougs First. And from what I see, having been involved in the Cougs First over here since its inception, Spokane is way far ahead of where Cougs First was in their second year. Just an observation. Let's talk to Colin White. And again, he's the chair of Cougs First Spokane. So my first question to Colin was, when do the activities get underway? One o'clock is when kind of all the events start. Uh, Mayor Condon of Spokane will be declaring that day Cook's first day. At three o'clock, our very own WSU president, Kurt Schultz, will be giving a keynote address uh, over in the Davenport Grand. And then right when that gets done, people just walk right across the hallway and we'll go right into the show. It begins at four o'clock. For those that are sticking around to the end of the show, which is right before 8, I think 7.30 is when we're probably going to cut it off, is when the after party is going to start. So people can go, uh, get some food, some drinks, go socialize, kick their feet up, relax after a long day of walking uh, around the showroom floor and meeting other Cougs and Coug businesses. Now, if someone's going to attend this, do they have to pre-register? They don't have to. Walk-ups are welcome. We do highly recommend that they pre-register. The uh, coming in and getting set up process will be much faster. We'll already have your name and your badge printed out and, and be able to get you all sorted. If you don't register, again, totally okay. Registration is not required, but it definitely is encouraged. Now, is this just for Cougars? 
Great question. It's not. Uh, so the businesses that will be there are all Kugo-owned, affiliated, or managed. Everybody's encouraged to attend. If you have a Husky friend, totally can bring your Husky friend uh, or anybody else that is not affiliated to WSU, so it's open to the general public. This show is, is meant to uh, promote the businesses to uh, all different audiences, not just us Cougs uh, who are you know, buying their services or products. How many businesses do you expect will be there? We are up to 72 right now. We were going to cap it at 75. So we have a few extra spots open right now that I know that we're just getting final details for some from um, late businesses that are coming on board that have just heard about us. So this is double from last year. So it will be a lot more individuals to see for those that are attending. Wow, that's a remarkable growth. And this is only the second show, right, in Spokane. Seattle has done this, I think, for seven years. You're correct. This is our second show, so we've been able to closely double within that. I think it's great, and I think it's a great networking opportunity for Cougars and others in Spokane to come to this. So this has provided me selfishly a lot of great uh, understanding of where the Cougar businesses are and what what they're up to. What types of businesses participate in the show? We've been able to diversify in the different industries that are out there, accounting, finance, uh, mortgage, uh, you have people that own, uh, there's a trampoline company that was there last year. Um, you have uh, consulting businesses. You have uh, businesses that are local restaurants and bars. Uh, there'll be breweries there and wineries. We don't limit it to any certain industry. It's across the board, and we've been very fortunate to be able to get such a variety of businesses from different industries so that people can really take in what they what they are looking for as far as maybe a certain business or a certain industry that, that they need um, a service or product from. You know what I find a lot of fun? I've gone to pretty much all the events up here in uh, Seattle, and uh, you run into people that you haven't seen for years, and that's very unexpected but very pleasant. Agreed. Agreed. I, uh, that's the, that was one, the one thing when I graduated from Wazoo, I realized is just how warm and friendly uh, Cougs are to one another, right? You, you, you may not know somebody, but once you, once you find out they're another Coug, it's just like an immediate family connection. So if someone wanted to go to this and pre-register, how would they do that? Just go to kooksfirst.org, not, not kooksfirst.com. Just go to that. Go to the, sh- the show. Actually, right on the main page right there, it'll be a, a little link there for you to just click on it. It'll ask you just a few questions, first name, last name, uh, email address, and and uh, a business. And if you're, again, if you're retired or you don't work, you know you just fill in whatever you want there. And that's it. It'll send you a quick email saying you're all set. We'll see you at the show at 4 o'clock or whenever you can you can attend. It, you don't have to be there at 4. If people are getting out of work at 5 or 5.30, definitely come right after you're done with work and, and take a couple hours to see the show, and that, that's it. That's Colin White, chair of Cougs First Spokane. Again, if you want to register, go to org. Colin strongly urges you that you pre-register, but it is not mandatory. So if you don't, you can still come to the show. It just may be easier if you pre-register. In the events again, 3 o'clock p.m., President Kirk Schultz will be speaking. The trade show goes from 4 to about 7.30 p.m., close to 8 o'clock. And then there's the after party from 8 to 10, and it's all free. Anybody is welcome. We're talking even Huskies are welcome. Zags are welcome. Whomever in the greater Spokane area is welcome to attend Cougs First Spokane. are out of time. I would like to thank Casey Murrow, Melissa Block, and Colin White 
for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. You can reach me by calling 206-459-5536. Any suggestions for topics of future shows, I'm all ears. That's 206-459-5536. Have a great rest of the week.